You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. We are starting a new series this morning called The Roots of Christmas. And uh, for those of you who are regulars here, we've been talking about uh, the Advent Jesse book. And if you haven't got one, there's still a few copies at the back. You can grab one on your way out. And the idea with that uh, is that Advent would be every day of the month leading up to Christmas morning. And so with our Sunday mornings here, we're kind of tracking along with that as well and following the story as it is unveiled to us. And the reason why we called it the roots of Christmas is because, maybe it's just because I have a slight fascination with trees. I've, if you're a regular here, I've talked about trees before. You know that I just, I love trees. I'm fascinated by them. I'm growing a little forest in my front yard, okay? Most of my neighbors are laughing at me, but that's the project that is happening. But trees are fascinating because they are massive underground. And uh, there's a university in Austria, actually, that for the last 40 years has been digging up plants, bushes, trees, and drawing out what the root system looks like. This is a picture of the Pinus sylvestri, okay, which is a pine tree, okay, that's what it is. It's a pine tree. But they have excavated the root system of it and have then someone, you know, put it to pencil and drew the depths of the roots. And this is just like from one side of it, but it goes 360 around. So imagine if you're in your yard and you've got multiple trees, and you start digging in the ground, and you find all this root system, these these big roots, these small roots. You don't know if it's going to that tree over there, or like where is this root system going? You're trying to figure this out. This is what we're talking about when we come to the Christmas story and the roots of the Christmas story. The Bible is one big storybook. You may think of Christmas as just like another thing on the uh, list of things that Christians cover. You know, there's the children of Israel, there's all the, the epistles and all that's going on there, and then Christmas is just another one of those stories in the Gospels. But actually, all the roots, everything that God has recorded for us, all that God has been doing in history and in time has been leading towards this one momentous moment which is the arrival of Christ. And this story is so important. It's been captured for us, and it's something that we come back to as Christians every year to rehearse and to retell. And here's something to to keep in mind. There's a reason why it's so important to retell the story over and over again. Because God has actually made us, he's, he's wired us to be people who determine our life's direction through the power of story. Each and every one of us are inundated with stories throughout our lives, and it's stories that actually shape us. One of the ways that we know this is if you would meet someone and you want to find something about their life, you you know, tell me about your life, what would come out? The first thing that's probably going to come out is stories, things that have impacted you, things that you have done. And so there is a great power in the the shaping 
and the forming that stories have in our lives. And there's a lot of different stories within the world that we live in. Mark Turner writes this, Story is a basic principle of mind. Most of our experience, our knowledge, and our thinking is organized as stories. So the question is, what's the story that is shaping you? That's a really important question to answer. Because there's many, like, larger stories that shape our worldview. One of them that is out there that's very common is a, you know, secular, humanistic, scientific mindset. That the world just started kind of Big Bang Theory, you know, and it kind of set it in motion. And from that, there's like all this stardust and particles around that have slowly formed into universes, galaxies, planets, and, and somehow then this has all come together here, and here we find ourselves by the, by the magic of the stardust, and we are born, we live, and, and the mindset is grab all that you can, enjoy every last ounce, because eventually you will die, that will be the end of your story, you'll become stardust. And in like multiple trillions of years, all of this, stars, dust. And the result of like a mindset of, like that, of that is you are the final determiner of what's going to happen in your life because you've only got one shot. So there's that story. Another story that is um, like maybe our West wouldn't even like to acknowledge this, but another story that's even larger is the story of religion. So the, the first view is like this kind of atheistic, God doesn't exist. The second story that is actually larger on our planet is the story of religion. That there is some God out there, be it large G or small G, maybe like gods in a home or maybe a you know, theistic God that is worshipped. And here's how that story plays out. You again have one life to live. And what you do, the good that you do or the the dictates that you follow or the rules that you follow, whatever it is that you are like prescribed to do, you do those things to the best of your ability. And the hope then is that the, like the equal sign, the result is that good things come your way. And if life is going poorly, then you probably haven't done it right. So the result in that context, in that story, is that you again are the determiner. You are the one who's going to be successful or unsuccessful because of what you've done in response to the gods. There's another story that we tell here, which is God's story. God has actually revealed himself. That doesn't make me special. That doesn't make citizens special. It actually makes God's story special and unique. That God has come and he has revealed himself. And here's the difference with the story. And we're going to talk about it here for the rest of our time together. The difference with this story is that God is the hero. God is the one who does the rescuing. God is the one who has shown up and has put things in motion. So if you did the first Advent on December 1st, you'll remember that it begins with creation. That God is the one who actually set all of this in motion. God did the most unhuman thing. He created something out of nothing. 
He created the galaxies and the universe and the world. And he created as, as the pinnacle of all that he made. He made men and women with the idea that they would multiply, that they would increase, and that they, together with God, would be in wonderful relationship. There would be flourishing that would happen. This is God's design. He is the one who thought this up. But then as we track yesterday's story, December 2nd in the Advent, is that something actually happened. A, a cataclysmic event happened. Sin entered into the world. Adam and Eve sinned. And into this world then, into this wonderful relationship came brokenness. Through death, through experience, through a choice made, a serious division was formed between God and mankind. But right around the corner from that, God promises actually. God in, in Genesis 3, he lays out the results of this sin. There's consequences, you're gonna, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be you know, division, there's going to be struggle. But in Genesis 3.15, God says, I'm rolling out a plan from this day forward, there's going to be a plan put in place that is actually going to solve the problem that has just started here. The problem of sin will be resolved, and God will be the hero. And so we come to this story now in Genesis chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, or if you have your phone with the Bible, um, turn to Genesis chapter 6. We're just going to um, skip along this story and look and see how does God continue to be the hero? What is God doing in the world that is going on around Noah in this story? And so let me just read verse 13 one more time because the story actually begins with judgment. The story begins with judgment. In verse 13 it says this, chapter 6, And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So the earth is filled with violence. God looks at what he's created. He looks at, at the people that are there. And there are, who knows how many people by this point, there are people all over and God looks down and sees violence and God says, Something has to be done about this. Something has to be done because of the violence and the, you know, the destruction that is going on. And, and this is one of the texts, these verses even right here, are, are some of the texts that people really struggle with. Whether it's Christians or people who aren't Christians, they say, how does this line up? You say you've got a God who is love perfect love. And yet now here we come to a text where God says he sees the violence, he sees the destruction, and what's he going to do? It says that he is going to destroy them all. He's going to destroy it all. How do we kind of put these two things together? Does the, the anger that God shows towards violence contradict the love that is a part of his character? That's a good question. But here we see it on display. Miroslav Volf, who is a, a Croatian theologian who um, 
experienced and understood the challenge of civil war in uh, those of you who are old enough would remember the Yugoslavian war that happened in the 90s and all the genocides that were going on. And out of this, he wrote a, a book called Exclusion and Embrace and talked about this idea about violence in the world and the justice of God. Like, how do all these things kind of come together? And, and does God allow this? Is God involved? Is God going to solve this problem of violence in the world? How do we kind of resolve these things? Wolf writes this. He says, Violence thrives secretly nourished by belief in a God who refused to wield the sword. Okay, that's a theologian, right? So we're like, what does that even mean? Okay, well, let me read a little bit further. He says this, It takes the quiet of a suburban home, protected by police and military force, for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. Wolf is saying, listen, if your first thought is that God should not deal with that God should not judge violence, then what you actually end up doing is bringing a human perspective. And that human perspective actually is probably formed within the comfort of a pretty good life that has not been touched by violence. Because he says, here's what happens. Here's the human nature. When violence comes into our lives, our natural inclination is to be violent back. And remember what Jesus said. Violence in actions is not always outward doing. In thought, in word, or in deed. So Wolf is saying, listen, if you have no space in your mind for a God who can actually properly deal with violence in the world, then you're only going to be left with a sheltered life that has experienced no violence, or you're going to be hurt, you're going to have violence done to you, and your expected proper response will be violence back, which is basically what we see happening in our world right now. You get hurt, we get hurt back. Or, Miroslav Volf says, or we look at the scriptures and we actually see that there is one who acts justly. There's one who can bring justice into situations that is beyond our understanding, actually. It is one who acts out of holiness, purity, and total love. God is the only one who can properly administer justice. So God here sees the violence in the world around him and is, is going to bring justice and judgment on the world. And in 1 Peter, this isn't just an Old Testament idea. 1 Peter talks about how Jesus also came to this world. And Peter says Jesus came and he suffered Peter says in, in 1 Peter 2.21 that Christ suffered even though, get this, he committed no sin. Even though Christ committed no sin, Peter says Jesus suffered. And what did Jesus do in that moment? He didn't lash back. He, he didn't do anything. Peter says here's what Jesus did. He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Peter says that's what you need to understand. That's how you need to actually 
think about what God is doing around you and when God administers justice, that there is, there is one who can do justice perfectly. We may be able to do it like pretty good. We maybe have judges and laws in place that are, are really helpful and they're good, but every single one of those are administered by people who are tainted by sin. They are written by people who get things wrong. God, on the other hand, is perfect in his judgments. And so when God comes to judge sin, he is doing it rightly. But God does not sit there in in glee and happiness and do this. God's not like excited. You know, yes, the flood. I've been waiting for this. I'm really excited to just like see everybody, you know, be destroyed and see the planet be destroyed. It actually grieves God to do this. In, in the verses 5 through 7, the message kind of puts it um, in, in like an understandable way for us. It says this, that God saw that human evil was out of control, that people thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. God was sorry that he made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. It broke the heart of God. Because remember, God's vision from creation was that him and creation, people would live in harmony, and now sin just wrecks that. Sin just totally destroys that. And so now when judgment comes, God is not is doing that with glee or happiness. God is sorry. God is grieved when he actually has to bring judgment. But these two things, they show up together. God's anger and his distress over what's happening. Jesus himself experiences this. There's, there's a story in, in Mark 3 where Jesus on the Sabbath wants to heal a man with a withered hand. Read that story later today. Mark 3. Jesus wants to heal this man who's withered, but it's on the Sabbath. So the religious leaders are ticked that he's doing this. Think about it. God is going to do a miracle on the spot and heal someone. And the religious leaders are ticked because he's breaking the law. He's actually doing some sort of work in their minds. And in that text, it says actually that Jesus was angry. And in the next word is, and he was grieved. He couldn't, it broke his heart that they didn't even see what God was doing. Anger, grief coming together in the person of Jesus. Not just in Old Testament stories. So here we have this, in, in many ways, like this terrible event that is happening, this flood that is coming, that God's judgment has come down. But this story is not all just about judgment. We can be maybe overwhelmed by that aspect of it, but it's not all about judgment. The story goes on, and there's a, a powerful little phrase that we can almost pass over in chapter 8, Verse 1, it says this, God is speaking to Noah. It says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. God has had an idea. Make yourself an ark. Now, maybe you're uh, still hunting for that perfect Christmas gift. I mean, we're only three days into December, you know. There, it, some of you have a list. Others of you are just, you know, shooting from the hip, which doesn't always go well. I've done that before, okay? I've picked certain gifts. They're, they've gone down in folklore in our family as terrible gifts that were just spur of the moment, picked on the spot, okay? So 
you and I should both know that not every idea we have is a great idea, right? Let's be honest. Not every idea we have is a great idea. But here we come to this moment of judgment coming onto the world. And does God have the right to completely restart planet Earth? Yes. God has the right as creator and maker as the only one who is divine and who is God, God has the absolute authority and right to hit total reset on the planet. This plan is not working. This plan stinks. Restart. Gonzo, I'm going to create a new Adam and Eve. God has the right to do that. But God says to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. God says, I'm actually going to be gracious in this moment. It's a planet filled with violence. But I'm actually going to start something here to, to save those who will come to my invitation. God is making a way so that people can be saved. And, and Noah is, is not perfect. Just read the end of chapter 9. We won't do it today. Just read the end of chapter 9. You'll see Noah is not a perfect man. God does not look at Noah and say he's perfect. It does say that Noah is righteous. But Noah is not perfect. God's not doing this that, because he owes Noah something. God sees within Noah a humility and a willingness to follow God's lead. So Paul Max says this. Noah has approached God in faith on God's terms, humbly relating to God in, re in real-life ways, so God gladly, eagerly, graciously puts his plan into place. God is like, yes! There's an opening here where I can actually use grace and my goodness, and someone in that act of grace-giving will respond to my goodness and will respond to the, the gracious outpouring of something like the idea of an ark. God is eagerly looking for ways to show grace and to make ways for people to be in relationship with him. This is God's idea, a rescue plan that could be brought together. And so God then tells Noah, like we just read in chapter, in chapter 8, verse 1, to build the ark, and so he does that. And in 1 Peter 3.20, it gives us an insight into God's mindset and even what God is doing as Noah like slowly, laboriously builds this huge ark. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 20, it's, Peter puts it like this, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being, will, built, being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So Peter is saying, here's what God is doing. He calls Noah to build an ark, and then God patiently waits. Year after year after year, decade after decade after decade, God is waiting, giving Noah time to, to build this thing, to put it together, and people are watching, and people are coming, and people are like experiencing the seeing of this thing. It is not a secret. God is not saying, okay, Noah, I'm going to give you a boat, and then in 12 hours, you're going. So get ready to, you know, get on it because we don't want anybody else to know. No, God says, 
build this boat over time, over decades. And it even says later in Peter that, Paul, uh, that uh, Noah was like proclaiming. He was heralding like, come, you can come onto this boat. There's a flood that's coming. God's judgment is coming and you can enter into this boat and God will save you. He is the hero. He is the rescuer. And so God's word goes out and God continues to this day to proclaim his word through us, his people, as we live and as we share the gospel, through the, the scriptures that I was just looking it up today, that there are, there are over 5 billion copies of the Bible on the planet. Did you realize that? Over 5 billion copies of the printed Bible on the planet. And it's been printed in some portion in 3,658 languages. It's not done yet. Wycliffe and others are still working at it. It's not finished yet. It's not in every language. But in 3,658 languages, some portion, some proclamation of God's story is out there. And so just like Noah, waiting, building, plan coming together, God's word goes out. But if you, if you read scripture, you know that not only does God have his word that we read and study, but God proclaims his nature uh, through the things that we see and experience, through all the joys. And so you know as well as I do that so many people around us are entering into the joy of this season with no connection to Christ at all. So in our town, I, I kind of pride myself on being one of the first to have like the Christmas lights on, like mid to early November. Mine are on, baby, like ready to go, you know. But I quickly discover that other people in town are way more festive than I am. Like lights to, you know, to the nines. And our neighbor across the street this year just went all out and got these lights from somewhere that are like on a pattern and they're colorful and they're bright. They're lovely. You look out, you're doing dishes, you look out and they're just shining, they're radiant. People are experiencing the joy of this season. And when they're going to eat food together, and when they're going to give gifts and experience family and friendship, all those things, theologians call that common grace. That is the grace of God pouring out on those who know him and on those who don't know him. And I'll tell you, here's what it is. It is, it is a proclamation of an invitation that there is something more out there. That sin actually ends up breaking our, as Augustine says it, like our loves are disordered. That's what sin brings into place. Our loves are disordered. And God says the true love, the true joy, all those things that you're tasting it, that's actually fully found in Christ. This is the same invitation that, that Noah is saying. There is, there is a rescuer. There is flourishing found in the one who will save us, in God himself. And so Noah proclaims, and he builds, and over time, God invites them into the ark. And so Noah and his family are the only ones that enter in. God is not like a chess player who will take pieces and put them in place. God invites. And in the story of the ark, God invites people in, 
And some come in and enter into the safety, and God closes the door, it says, and he keeps them and sustains them through the flood. But then finally we come to the end of the story, where God gives them a promise. Now, I don't know what your first thought would have been after the ark has landed on dry ground now and the door is open. Like, what's your first thought when you come out of the ark? Maybe you're like kissing the ground that you're on. I don't know, you're like so thankful to be standing on the ground. Or maybe you're just ready to chop the ark up. You've built this thing, you're done, like let's chop it up. Or maybe you're worried every time now that you see clouds, you know, that another flood is going to come. I don't know what your thought would be, but the first thing that God does with Noah and those who are on the ark is he proclaims to them a promise. Look at chapter 9, verses 14 through 16. It says this. God speaks to Noah. He says, When I bring clouds over the earth, and the bow or the rainbow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. So God says, here's a promise. This flood will never happen again. God doesn't come out and say, listen, you've seen this now. Everybody's gone. Everything you knew is gone. All the markets you used to go to, all the restaurants, wiped clean. If this happens again, I'm going to bring another flood. It's going to be twice as deep. Don't do it again. That's not how God responds. God says, I'm going to give you a promise, Noah. Record this for all generations to know. This will never happen again. A judgment like this, a earthly judgment of a flood proportion, will never happen again. And how is it that God can say that? How can God say that? The reason he can say that is because the roots of Christmas, all that God is doing, is leading to Jesus' arrival. God knows that a greater rescue is coming. Because the flood did not take care of sin. God knows that a greater solution is coming. A true rescuer is on his way. And so God gives a promise of a covenant. So there's a couple things before we head into communion here. There's a couple things that happen regularly as a result of this covenant that God gives to us. God promises this to Noah and to subsequent generations. But here's what happens. Here's the first thing is we forget. We forget God's promise. Now, I don't know about you. I have a notoriously bad memory. So I bought this app that is a like master to-do list. So if you like want the greatest to-do list app ever, talk to me after. I've got this app. It's got all the settings. I mean, you can set the date of things, you can tag things, you can cluster it, you can, have, you can set an infinite amount of reminders if you need to, okay? You can do all these things, and yet somehow I still forget to do some stuff, you know? It just, it still happens. Things get overlooked, things get forgotten. We still forget, and here's how we forget, either by 
Omission or by commission. Those are theological words, okay? We forget because we are sinful people, and we forget either by accident, just because we're human and we do all kinds of things in our lives that distract us, so we're just either too busy, or by the very choices we make, we choose not to believe in the promises of God. Even with the not a stretch to say the, the eternal invitations from God, constant invitations from God to enter into his grace. We forget by nature or we forget by choice. But here's the second thing. Here is the, the real good news. We forget, but God remembers. God remembers. Did you catch that in the scripture there that this rainbow is going to be there? We think like the rainbow is all about our memory. It's all about just like God telling us that not another flood's going to come. But if you look at the verses there, it actually says that it's a reminder to God. So God is regularly reminded all the time. And there's probably, I'm guessing, a rainbow that shows up on the planet every single day, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of times a day somewhere on the planet. God is the remembering God he will not forget his promises. He will not forget his plan. We may doubt. Life may be heavy on us. Discouragement may set in. The difficulty of our existence through our aging and aching bodies and through the problems that we experience in our personal relationships, in the problems on a global scale that are before us can seem overwhelming, but here's what we are told to be reminded of, is that God remembers. God remembers his promises. And so when we come to the Christmas story, we see that God's plan is coming together. God hasn't forgotten. God's plans are slowly coming together. So in Luke chapter 1, when Zechariah finally hears about his son, John the Baptist, and, and he's like, all the things are slowly coming together. The dots are being connected. And he sings this prayer to, to the people and to God. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 67, it says this, And his father, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. So he's filled with the Spirit, and this is what he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Verse 7, he says, As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant. You see that? Zechariah prophesying by the Holy Spirit. He's saying, God is doing it. The plan that was in place from Genesis 3.15 is coming together. In Zechariah, it was in his day. God has not forgotten. Christ has come. And so Zechariah says, it's happening here. Verse 73 says, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. The promises are holding. God is good on his promises. And so when we come to Christmas, as Christians especially, we should be overwhelmed with the joy because God has accomplished his purposes. When Jesus came, 
the purposes of Jesus, the purposes of God, the purposes of salvation have all come together in him. So we are singing, we are remembering the story, we are practicing joy even in the midst of hardship. We are practicing joy because God has pulled together his plan. And so this morning here as we transition to the Lord's Supper, we know that, that part of the plan as well was that Jesus would come as a child and Christmas time would be a time of celebration and wonder, but this child would grow old and this child would be a teenager and a young adult and then in his 30s, he would have a ministry and would proclaim good news. And part of that good news would be, I've come to die for the sins of the world. And so even now at Christmas, we pause and remember that, that part of God's plan, part of his plan for Christ would be the suffering, the death, but ultimately the, the resurrection, the conquering of death. For our sins, so that once again we would be as as God's people rescued from our sin, and the the flourishing and the relationship that God had designed for us would be brought together again. So this morning, if you're a believer, we invite you to take communion with us. We're gonna pass the trays around. You can uh, take the cup out and just um, meditate for a moment, and then eat the bread. And then we're going to pray and take the juice and do the same. And we're going to remember the gift of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection for our sins.